Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 64, Hot Prospect Margaret kicked open the swinging men's room door. She leaned in and shouted urgently, Amos, let's go, man! We got another one! A toilet flushed. Amos lurched out of a stall, stumbling as he fought to pull up his pants. Margaret turned and sprinted down the hallway. Amos ran to keep up. She skidded to a halt in front of the elevator. Clarence Otto held the doors open. She and Amos entered. The door shut, and Otto hit the button for the parking garage. How far is it from here? Clarence pulled out a map and gave it a quick study. About ten minutes, give or take. Margaret grabbed Clarence's strong arm, her face electric with urgency. What's the victim's condition? What are his symptoms? I don't know that, ma'am. Do is en route, backed up by two rapid response teams in full bio suits. I believe it's an apartment complex. Margaret let go of his arm and tried to compose herself. Ah. <sighs> Do you think we'll get this one alive? I think so, ma'am, Clarence said. Do should already be there. The victim filled out a computer form. Instructions on that say to stay put and wait for help. I can't imagine anything going wrong at this point. Chapter 65 The Great Escape Perry shut the outside door behind him, took a quick look up the empty hallway, then glanced back through the window just in time to see one of the cops sprint out of Building B and jump into the police cruiser. The car's red and blue bubble lights flashed. Perry grinned sadistically. Fuck you, coppers, he whispered. You'll never take me alive. Maybe they hadn't known what to expect when they pulled up. They probably thought Bill would have Perry all hogtied and ready for delivery. They'd underestimated Perry. He was sure they wouldn't do it again. He turned and looked down the hallway of Building G. He felt something, something strange. A kind of buttery warmth in his chest. Perhaps an oily feeling deep inside. It was unlike anything he'd ever felt before. Perry realized he'd felt that feeling coming on as he'd sprinted for Building G, but once inside, it grew stronger. The hatching is coming! The hatching is coming! The triangle's rambling reminded Perry that his escape was only temporary. More cars were surely on the way. It was only a matter of time before the cops spotted him. He'd be shot down, of course, killed while, quote, trying to escape, end quote, whether he hopped his little ass off or lay down on the ground in front of 20 witnesses. It wouldn't matter. The soldiers would either buy the witnesses' silence or make them disappear as well. He had to get inside. He had to find the other triangle victim. Which way do we go, fellas? They had been the ones, after all, who'd shown him the truth about the soldiers, about Billy the informant. They had been the ones to tell him that men in uniforms would come, and they were right. They had been the ones to warn him in time to escape the cops. Go to the third floor. Damn, they learned fast. There was now almost no delay between them hearing a new concept, like directions, and their mastery of the terminology. He hopped up the stairs. With each step, the oily feeling in his chest grew a little bit stronger. 
By the time Perry reached the third floor, he felt the strange sensation in every fiber of his being. He moved down the hall until his triangle stopped him. This is it. Apartment G304. On the door was a little branch wreath, painted in soft pastels, with little wooden ducks holding a pink welcome sign. Country art. Perry hated country art. He knocked. There was no answer. He knocked again, louder and faster. Again, no answer. Perry leaned in so his mouth almost touched the door's edge. He spoke quietly, but loud enough to be heard on the other side. I'm not leaving. I know what you're going through. I know about the triangles. The door opened a crack, snapping taut the chain lock. Perry heard a stereo softly playing Whitney Houston's version of I'm Every Woman. A chubby face peered through the door, a face that might have been attractive had the woman had any sleep in the past four or five days. She looked angry, harried, and scared, all at the same time. As soon as he saw the face, the oily sensation damn near overwhelmed him. Now he knew what it was. He somehow sensed the presence of another host. Before she even said a word, Harry knew she was infected. Who are you? she asked. He couldn't miss the tinge of hope in her voice, hope that this man had come to save her. Perry spoke in a calm voice. I live in this complex. My name is Perry. Let me in so we can talk about what we're going to do. Through the crack of the door, he could only see two inches of her face, but it was enough to show she wasn't convinced. Are you from the government? From CSI? Fear hung from her words. Perry felt his patience running thin. Look, lady, I'm in the same fucking boat you are. I've got the triangles too, okay? Don't you feel it? Now open the door before someone sees us and calls the soldiers. The last word struck home. Her eyes opened up wide as she took in a quick hiss of breath and held it. She blinked twice, trying to decide if she should believe, then she shut the door. Perry heard the chain slide free. The door opened, and she looked at him expectantly, hopefully. Perry hopped in quickly, shoved her out of the way, then slammed the door shut and locked it, chain and deadbolt and even the shitty lock on the knob, thank you very much. He turned around with a light hop and found himself staring at a huge butcher knife poised only a few inches from his chest. He put his hands up lightly, at shoulder level, and leaned away from the blade until his back hit the door. A mixture of emotions etched her brown eyes, anger and fear predominant above all else. If he said one wrong word, he'd find that knife buried in his chest. She was a tall woman, about five foot seven, but fat pushed her weight to around 170 pounds. She wore a yellow housecoat with a green and blue flower pattern. It hung on her, like a hand-me-down four sizes too big. The triangle diet plan had done wonders for her as well. She must have been at least 225 before she was infected. Fuzzy gray bunny slippers adorned her feet. Her blonde hair, pulled back into a messy ponytail, looked out of place against her middle-aged face, a face that radiated fear and hopelessness. He was much bigger than she was, but he wasn't taking any chances. One thing he'd learned on the playground early in life was that fat people were strong people. They didn't look it, but carrying all that extra weight made for powerful muscles that could be surprisingly quick at things like punching or grabbing or stabbing. Jesus, lady. Put the knife down. How, how do I know you're not with the government? Let's see some ID. Her voice quavered 
as did the nice point. Come on, Perry said, his temper steadily creeping higher. If I was from the government, do you think they'd send me out with government ID? Use your head. I'll tell you what. Let me roll up my sleeve, okay? I'll show you. He slowly dropped his backpack to the floor, wishing he'd left the top open so he could quickly grab his own kitchen cutlery. But if he tried for it, she might panic and stab him. Perry pushed up his sleeve. The wave of overflow excitement hit him like a severe drug rush. That's her, that's her. She's going to have to, that's her. Oh my God, her voice was a hoarse whisper. Oh my God, you've got them too. The knife fell to the carpet. Perry closed the distance with one short hop. He caught her with a big overhand left that slammed her cheekbone. Her head snapped down and back. She cried out a little as she fell to the floor. She laid sobbing and motionless on the pale yellow carpet. Stop it now! Stop it now! Now! Perry winced at the pain from the mild mind scream. He'd figured that would happen, but at least he'd gotten a good lick in first. You had to show women who was in charge, after all. Bitch, if you ever pull a knife on me again, I'll carve your fat ass up. The woman sobbed with pain, terror, and frustration. Perry knelt next to her. Do you understand me? She said nothing, her face hidden in her arms, fat shaking like a jello mold. Perry gently stroked her hair. She cringed at his touch. I'll only ask you one more time, and if you don't answer, I'll put my boot in your ribs, you fat fuck. She looked up suddenly, tears streaming down her face. Yes! Yes, I understand you! She was yelling. It was as if she wanted to piss him off, was trying to piss him off. Women. Give him an inch and they take a mile. Her tear-streaked face reminded him of a glazed donut. No room in life for tears, woman. No room at all. He continued to stroke her hair, but his voice took on an icy cold quality. One more thing. If you raise your voice above conversational levels again, you're dead. And I mean there's no question about it. Cross the line with me again and I'll fuck you with that butcher knife of yours. Do you understand? She just stared at him with a pathetic look of disbelief and utter helplessness. Perry held no sympathy for her. She was weak, after all, and in a violent world, only the strong survive. Perry's voice bubbled with anger. He talked slowly, each word clearly defined. Do. You. Under. Stand. Yes. I understand. Please don't hit me again. She looked so pitiful. Blood trickling from her cheek, fear in her eyes, her face lined with tears. She looked like an abused woman. Like his mother had looked, after his father had finished with a lesson. Perry shook his head hard. What the hell was happening to him? What was he becoming? The answer was simple. He was becoming what he had to become to live. Only the strong survive. He stared at the woman, fighting to push his guilt down somewhere deep, Somewhere he didn't have to deal with it. The Perry that had controlled his aggression for ten years? Well, there was no more room for that person. He wiped the tears from her face with a gentle touch. Now get your fat ass off the floor and make some food. Feed us. We are hungry. He felt excitement well up fresh and strong. The triangles knew food was on the way. It made them happy. Very happy. The emotion was powerful. So powerful that Perry couldn't help but feel a little of their happiness himself.
In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Chapter 66. Overtime. Dew stared out the Buick's window watching the flurry of police activity outside, the big cellular phone pressed to his ear. By the looks of things, he'd arrived maybe ten minutes too late. So close. The missed opportunity made him boil inside. It's a really, really big snafu, Murray. Fucking locals are everywhere, and more are on the way. He could almost see Murray's face turning red. Did the rapid response teams go in? Why didn't they just take over? They didn't go in at all. They called me first, and I waved them off. You think it's a bad situation now? Try bringing in eight machine gun toting goons wearing bio suits and watch the press jizz all over themselves. Oh, for God's sakes, Murray said, his voice tired and ragged. The press is already there? Yep. Local cops were first on the scene. Press picked it up on a scanner, maybe. We didn't have a chance at information control. The cops are keeping the media at a distance. There's no way we can go in without being seen by at least three network news teams. The radio and TV stations had already been buzzing with news of Gitwin's murder spree and subsequent suicide. The news didn't get any bigger than that, unless, of course, the cops mounted a manhunt for a former University of Michigan linebacker who'd left a mutilated corpse in his apartment. With those two murder stories flying, Coverage of a gas explosion that killed a mother and son had disappeared completely. Remember, the Dossie kid was a major celebrity in this town. Bunch of fucking liberals here in the media. They're giddy to see a football player live up to Billin as a creature of violence. This isn't D.C., Murray. This is Ann Arbor, Michigan. This is a long-haired, pot-smoking little college town. 
A fugitive killer football player is their story of the decade, and the government trying to cover it up. That's just icing on their hippie cake. Do, considering the situation, do you see any way we can bring Darcy in alive? Well, that's your call, LT. You have to appreciate just how many cops are looking for him. There's a dead body in his apartment. They're not just going to stop looking because I tell them we're on the case. They want Darcy. They want him bad. If he's in any kind of advanced state of infection, cops might see his growths. If they capture him, expect someone to get a camera on him and a boatload of reporters fighting to know why he killed a man. If he's arrested and we can't get to him right away, the triangles might make national news before the night is out. If the reporters see those triangles, well, that SARS bullshit won't cut it. Cops take Dossie alive and it blows this whole thing wide open. What do you suggest? I recommend we take him out ASAP and we get the local cops in on the action. They're just looking for an excuse to pull the trigger. Maybe we connect Dossie to Gwen. I'll tell him Dossie probably has an explosive vest or a bio-warfare agent, whatever. I'll make sure there are clear orders to shoot Dossie on sight, but to stay away from his body till our crews can remove him. Margaret needs a live victim. So we get the next one. If you want to keep this a secret, I told you what we need to do. Do waited through a long pause. LT had a hell of a decision to make. No, Murray said finally. She needs that kid alive. It's more important than secrecy. Whatever it takes, bring him in alive. That's not going to be easy. The locals are really on edge. Then we connect Aussie to Gwen. I'll take care of it from our end. We'll inform the local cops. You just validate the story. What story? That Dossie has knowledge of a terrorist bomb. That he absolutely must be taken alive, no matter what the cost. Bring him in alive, Top. Murray hung up. Dew ground his teeth. Murray's plan would work, and Dew knew it. The cops would do whatever it took to get Dossie alive. Dew alternated his time between looking out the window at the Army of Police and looking at the digital photos of Dossie that Murray's people had transferred to the big cell phone. One was Dossie's most recent driver's license photo. Another was a close-up of Gwen's painting from the Human Arch. Where the other faces writhed in terror and agony, Perry scrunched in raw rage. Additional photos came from the kids' college football days. Dew focused on one such picture, a typical preseason publicity shot from Dossie's sophomore year. You sure are a big fucker, ain't you, kid? In the posed picture, late summer sun blared down on his maize and blue uniform. Most times, these shots showed a kid's best smile, but this one was different. Dossie smiled, sure, but there was something else. Something around the eyes that bespoke a savage intensity. It was almost as if Dossie's very being vibrated aggression. As if he couldn't handle putting on the pads and not hitting someone. Maybe it was the picture. Maybe it was the fact that he'd seen the kid play on TV. Dossie had been a rare one, a veritable beast who dominated the game every time he set foot on the field. Kid played meaner than a bull with a cattle prod up his ass and a rat trap snapped on his nuts. It was a damn shame, really, the knee injury that ended Dossie's career. Dew remembered seeing that on TV, too. Dew had watched men blown in half by landmines, men impaled with giant splinters from trees hit by artillery fire, men decapitated and twitching, rotten and bloated. And yet, there was something about watching the super slow-mo replay of that kid's knee bending 90 degrees the wrong way that made Dew's stomach almost rebel. He stared hard at the picture. 
memorizing every detail of Dossie's face. Big boy, sure. Big and strong and mean and dangerous, sure. But that's why man invented guns. Fuck Murray's orders. Being all-American didn't make you Superman, and a bullet in the head would bring scary Perry Dossie down, just as it would anyone else. Someone had to pay for Malcolm's death. Dossie was as good a target as any. Chapter 67, The Couch Dance Perry sat on a pale yellow couch that looked brand new, sinking back into the apartment's welcome shadows. He always found it strange to be in another Windywood apartment. With an identical floor plan but different furniture and decorations, it was as if his apartment had been taken over and redecorated with watercolor seascapes, matching curtains, lace doilies, and enough country art knickknacks to gag a camel. He munched on a chicken sandwich cautiously peering between the slats of the Venetian blinds. He'd lucked out with Fatty Patty's apartment. From her window, he could see the flurry of activity in front of his building. Seven cop cars, five local and two from the state police, threw a visual cacophony of red and blue lights against the pitch-black night. Observing the scene, he saw the reasons for his narrow escape. Fatty Patty had been watching out this window, and from this third-story perch, she had seen the police cruiser a long way off. Her triangles warned Perry, got him out of harm's way. It only made sense, really. They were protecting their own. Keeping Perry alive was vital. He was a walking incubator, after all, and if he died, the Three Stooges probably died with him. The cop car's flashing lights created a disco effect on the falling snow. It was well past midnight, and there wasn't a star in the sky. If he was going to move, it would have to be later that night, when the starless darkness covered everything and the soft snow swallowed every little sound with an insatiable hunger. But he wasn't going anywhere until he saw Fatty Patty pop. He had to know how it happened. She sat on a yellow chair that matched the yellow couch, nibbling on a sandwich of her own. She cried silently, fat jiggling in time with the tiny sobs. She held a thrice-folded paper towel to a fresh cut on her forehead. Perry had told her not to cry out loud. She hadn't listened. He'd cut her. The noise had stopped. Like Daddy always said, sometimes he just had to show women who was in charge. He noticed she'd used masking tape to hang a Michigan roadmap on the back of the front door. She'd scrawled a red line on US-23, moving north away from Ann Arbor. The line turned west at 83, then followed a series of small roads until it hit the town of Wajamiga. Around the town, she'd drawn several red circles and written the words, This is the place. Near Wajamiga, in neat ruler lines, she had drawn a symbol in red ink. Perry looked at the design he'd cut into his right arm. The scabs were still fresh. Sure, his was a bit messy, but then again it's a tad harder to make straight lines with a kitchen knife, right? What did that symbol mean to the triangles? Did the meaning even matter? No, it didn't. Nothing really mattered anymore. They told you to go to Wajamiga too, eh? Perry asked. She nodded quietly. Do you have a car? She nodded again, and he smiled. It would be easy. All he had to do was wait for the cops to clear out. Then he and Fatty Patty could drive to Wajamiga. As for what waited there, he really didn't want to know, but he was going anyway. 
This was his second chicken sandwich, with Miracle Whip, mind you, and a side of Fritos. It really hit the spot. He'd already polished off lasagna leftovers, some chocolate cake, a can of Hormel chili, and a pair of Twinkies. His hunger was long gone, but the triangles constantly urged him to eat. And eat he did. Munching away on the sandwich, he felt surprisingly content. He wasn't sure how much of that enjoyment was his and how much was overflow from the triangles. The things beamed with near-orgasmic pleasure at the steady flow of nutrients. The line between what they felt and what he felt was beginning to get a little fuzzy, like the way he now truly wanted to go to Wajamiga. Have to watch out for that, Perry old boy, he thought. Can't fall into their little trap. Gotta keep your own thoughts, or you're as good as dead. He decided to kill another triangle as soon as he finished the sandwich. That would redefine their relationship. Nothing like a little self-mutilating demarcation to set things straight. In front of his building, the Columbos scrambled around like little ants. Perry reveled in his third-floor view. The drama below unfolded like a soundless, long-distance version of cops. The police had knocked on Fatty Patty's door. She'd given an award-winning performance. No, she hadn't heard anything. No, she hadn't seen a huge man wandering around the building. She was afraid of Perry, but thanks to her triangles, she was scared shitless of the cops. So she chose the lesser of two extreme evils. He stared out the window, careful to stay in the shadows, and wondered if they knew he was watching. But that didn't make any sense. If they knew where he was, they'd come after him. Unless they were already watching him. Perry's eyes narrowed. He flicked his gaze about the apartment. Could there be a secret camera in here somewhere? A bug? Were they listening to him? They'd been watching him in his apartment. Of that he had no bow to doubt it. So maybe they were set up to monitor Fatty Patty as well. If that was the case, his great escape plan was nothing more than jumping out of the fire and back into the frying pan. And come to think of it, how did he know for sure that she even had the triangles at all? Maybe she didn't have any. Maybe this was a setup. Maybe she had some machine that told his triangles that this was a safe haven. Maybe she was just there to keep an eye on him. Maybe they were combing through his apartment, gathering data, while they knew damn fucking well that he sat up here with Fatty Patty, chewing away on a chicken sandwich and Fritos. Perry's gaze nailed her to the yellow chair. She had that expression gazelles wear after being brought down by a lion before the bite to the jugular, before the final coup de grace. He set his plate down on the coffee table. Where are they? What? What? New tears filled her eyes and rolled down her fat cheeks. Did she still think this was a game? He picked up his butcher knife and patted the flat of the ten-inch blade against his palm. Each time the blade slapped lightly against his skin, she winced as if hit by a tiny electric shock. Don't fuck with me, Perry whispered, smiling all the while. Not because he liked this, or because he was trying to scare her, but because he was in control. Where are they? Show me. Her chubby face changed as the words fell into place like the clicking tumblers of a lock. You mean my triangles, right? She rushed the words out with an incredibly servile tone. He felt a powerful stab of homesickness. The eagerness to placate, the desperate desire to avoid a beating, it reminded him of his mother. His mother talking to his father. You know damn well that's what I'm talking about. I'm not playing games, I swear. She was terrified, 
He could see that as plain as day. Despite her tangible fear, she kept her voice low and controlled. That was good. She stood up and pulled off her huge nightshirt. She did it quickly and without noise, but the expression on her reddening face revealed humiliation. Her tits hung pendulously, huge round mountains with nipples the size of a dime. She was fat, yet her stretched mark skin seemed far too big for her body. Perry revised his earlier estimate of 225 pounds. Before the triangles, Fatty Patty must have weighed 260 if she'd weighed an ounce. She had the triangles all right, three on her stomach. Tears streamed down her face and leaped from her quivering chin to fall in bright sparkles on her tits. She turned to the left without being asked. He saw the triangle on her left hip, its black eyes staring coldly back at him, blinking every few seconds. It was a much deeper shade of blue than his. Something black and solid, like thin rope, stretched out from under each of the triangle sides, snaking under her flesh, with one spreading farther around her hip. Her skin didn't look healthy at all. Pus oozing blisters marked the triangle's edges. Above the triangle's body, her skin showed signs of stretching, as if the creature had grown too large for the pliable tissue to contain. When he looked at his own triangles, their eyes held a glassy, unfocused stare. The one on her hip was different. It stared back at him malevolently, the triple blinking eyes conveying the universal emotion of hatred as clearly as the beam of a high-powered flashlight through a snowy winter night. Fork you, buddy, Perry said quietly. When he made his move on Fatty Patty, he'd kill that one first. Lose the pants and spin. She didn't hesitate. She dropped the pajama bottoms and stepped out of them. She wasn't wearing panties. She spun slowly revealing a triangle on each ass cheek and one on the back of her right thigh. They all stared at him with unmistakable hatred. He wondered what they were saying about him, what messages they were sending into her head. It struck him as odd how healthy all her triangles looked. The pus-oozing sores were her own, of course. It had never occurred to him that someone might not fight, that someone might just let it happen. The concept was pathetic, but apparently she'd done just that. Daddy was right. Everything Daddy had ever said, it seemed, was right. Perry wondered in amazement how he could have ever thought different. You weak-ass bitch. You didn't try and do anything, did you? You just let him grow. She stood in front of him, naked, trembling with fear and humiliation, her hands unconsciously covering her pubic region. What was I supposed to do? Cut him out of me? Perry didn't answer. He set the knife on the coffee table his stare a clear warning against any sudden movements. He pulled off his shirt. The duct tape had turned black around the edges, a little line of stickum nicely framing the silver straps that held the blood-soaked washcloth in place. He picked up the knife and slid the blade under the duct tape. The tape parted with only a small ripping noise. The knife danced as he repeated the process, severing each strip. The washcloth, thick with coagulated blood and the jelly-like black goo, fell to the floor. The smell hit both of them instantly. An invisible demon that climbed into their noses and down their throats, pulling at the contents of their guts. Her hand went to her mouth as Perry laughed. He breathed deeply of the noxious, rotting odor of death. I love the smell of napalm in the morning, Perry said. It smells like victory. Thin jets of vomit spewed from between her fingers spraying across the room and landing on the couch as well as the end table and the carpet. 
The reek seemed to billow out of his shoulder like mustard gas. Perry hoped it was just the remnants of the triangle tail rotting into a putrid black ooze that produced the smell, not pieces and parts of himself. But in his heart, he knew that was a pipe dream. Was the one on his ass rotting too? The frayed, fibrous, unbreakable noose around his soul grew tighter and tighter. He couldn't leave them in, and he couldn't take them out. Fatty Patty lay on the floor, convulsing and retching, making quite a stink of her own. He ignored her, instead staring out the window. Third story. It wasn't like 20 stories or anything definitely fatal, but it was nothing to sneeze at. Especially if you landed on your head. He tried to remember if there were bushes below. He'd heard tales about men surviving 10-story falls because they'd landed in some shrubbery. He hoped there were no bushes. He moved closer to the window. It was dark outside. The light from the kitchen turned the window into a weak mirror. He could see himself through the Venetian blind slats. One good running start would take him clear through, carry him to the sidewalk below in a shower of jagged glass. Perry reached for the blind's cord and pulled down. The slats lifted, and his wide-eyed reflection stared back at him from only two inches away. The mirror image made his brain ground to a halt. His eyes, they were still blue, but the irises weren't round. They were triangular. A half-breath slid into his lungs, then his throat locked up. Bright blue triangular eyes. What the fuck? What the fuck? Perry closed his eyes tight. He was hallucinating. That was all. He rubbed hard with his fists, then opened his eyes again. The breath slid out of him, slowly, then back in deeply. His irises were round again. No, not again. They'd been round all the time. It had just been another hallucination, that's all. He blinked rapidly, feeling a semblance of control ease into his chest. Then he shut his eyes again and gave them one more hard rub. He knew what he had to do. Time to jump. Time to get this shit over with. He shook his head to clear it, then looked out the window and found himself staring at the full-body reflection of his father. The skeleton skinny man stared back, his gaunt face cracked by a smiling, angry expression. Perry remembered the look well. It was the look Daddy always wore, just before the beatings began. What are you doing, boy? Perry blinked, shook his head and looked again. His father was still there. Daddy? I ain't your daddy, boy, and you ain't my son. No son of mine thinks of giving up. You giving up, boy? Perry searched for an answer but found none. Daddy was dead. This was just a hallucination. Just because I'm dead doesn't mean you can't embarrass me, you little shit. Did your daddy give up when Captain Cancer came calling? No, sir, Perry said. The ingrained response to his father's question came quickly, automatically. Goddamn right he didn't. I fought that son of a bitch to the bitter end. And do you know why, boy? Perry nodded. He knew the answer, and he drew strength from it. Because you're a Dossie, Daddy. Because I'm a Dossie. I fought till I was nothing more than the walking bag of bones you see here. I fought, you little cocksucker. I was tough. I taught you how to be tough, son. I taught you well. What are you, boy? Perry's face hardened. The hopelessness vanished replaced by an angry determination. He might die, but he'd go out like a man. I'm a Dossie, Perry said. In the window, the weak reflection of Daddy smiled his toothy smile. 
Harry let go of the cord. The Venetian blind zipped closed, once again obscuring his own reflection. He turned and looked down at Fatty Patty, who was still coughing and gagging, rolling her naked roundness in her own vomit. Triangles looked up at him from her ass cheeks. He felt no pity for her, only disgust at her weakness. How could anyone be so pathetic as to just sit back and let this happen without even trying to fight? It's a violent world, princess, Perry said. Only the strong survive. If she couldn't be bothered to fight for herself, Perry sure as hell wasn't going to do anything to save her. Besides, he wanted to watch the hatching. You can't win, after all, if you don't know your enemy. She convulsed for the next five minutes, her jerky contortions flipping her onto her back. Perry wondered what might be wrong with her. The smell was overpowering, sure, but it couldn't make someone go into an epileptic seizure, could it? What was her problem? The question seemed to answer itself. The triangles on her stomach began to twitch and jitter under her flabby skin, as if she suffered muscle spasms. But he saw instantly that the twitching wasn't from her muscles. The triangles were moving on their own. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.